Hey, what's up, you guys? Uh, welcome to the second episode of the Cave Talks podcast. First off, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who uh, listened to last week's podcast, our very first one, called New Beginnings with Alan Ladan. Um, thank you guys for sharing it on Twitter and retweeting it and uh, posting it on Facebook and just sharing it. Uh, the response has been really amazing, and people seem to be liking the format of the show, which is really great, and uh, it keeps me motivated to keep on going and uh, and doing more episodes. So we have a really, really special guest in the studio today. This guy is one of my best friends and brother of 15 plus years. We, we played in a band together called My American Heart for that same amount of time. We've traveled the world together and shared so many memories. And uh, in this episode, we talk about growing up together in Paradise Hills, uh, being the only kids in girl jeans at school, <laughs> and 15 years of playing music together. The band just reunited a few months ago in October for the 10-year anniversary of the record we made called Hiding Inside the Horrible Weather. Uh, we go into that a little bit, and we talk about our future plans. Uh, we talk about our current projects and, of course, our, uh, our goals. But anyways, we have tons to cover in this episode, so I'll keep this intro short. I uh, hope you guys enjoy episode two of Cave Talks. So one of my biggest musical influences was Boys to Men growing up and Tony Braxton and a lot of soul, you know. So, you know, it was it was a ton of that in my household. And then, you know, my mom put me on Patsy Cline. Um, she put me on Fleetwood Mac. And I didn't know that side of her. And it just made me wonder because, you know, growing up, I listened to a lot of rap. It was, you know, my, my brother was a pretend gangster and, you know, we listened to Tupac, we listened to uh, just some weird, just rap, like gangster rap, like I want to beat somebody up rap. And it was just the weirdest thing. So, you know, I, I just I just felt like, you know, this is a little aggressive because I'm, I'm not an aggressive person. I, I, I never was and I never have been. Knowing that there was other music out there was, you know, something big for me. And um, for me, I, I, I belong to some friends that, you know, I hung out with some friends that actually were kind of gangster-esque. And I was like, man, this is not right. I, I don't want to fight anyone. I don't want to beat anyone up. I don't want to be mean to anyone. Because um, I watched that growing up. And that's not the life that I wanted. So not many of you know this, but I also have a half-sister and half-brother. Their names are Lisa, which is my twin, JR, which is my brother, and then I have Eddie, which is my half-brother, and Angel, which is my half-sister. And these people have been my rock, and they have been there for me since I was a little boy because uh, life wasn't so great all the time, you know? And things happen, and that's a lot of families, you know? Uh, I won't dive too much into that, but I will say that it's taught me how to grow up very quickly, and it's taught me how to, you know, interact with people and, and know what I like and know what I don't like. 
So I found some new friends, and some of those friends were Jeremy. Jeremy Mendez played guitar in My American Heart, and and we skateboarded at first. We started out skateboarding, and we listened to Eminem, and we listened to Limp Bizkit, and we jumped on the bed, and we, you know, rocking out, listening to Limp Bizkit. And he was like, hey, man, there's some other bands out there. And he showed me Newfound Glory, and he showed me MXPX and the Ataris, and he just literally showed me that there is other music out there, and it was the weirdest thing ever. Because I didn't know that existed. I just remember just being so inspired and like that was it. I I always wanted to be the guy. You know, I always wanted to be the front guy. And I wanted that for myself because I wanted to get out. I wanted a new life. And I knew that from early on. I think for me, the biggest thing was meeting Jeremy. He's my best friend. His mother was my mom. And I remember him joining a band and me wanting to be a part of it and having all these peers around me that were joining bands or starting bands. In that moment of finding out what kind of bands that I liked and, and going to shows, I knew I wanted to be a lead singer. So I would hang around these guys that I met, starting a band, just having fun, and just doing homework, acting very coy, and knowing that that was gonna be my job, that I was gonna take that over. I really wanna take it back, and I wanna talk about how I first met Jesse. I was in Filipino class, and he was in band, and um, we all go to Disneyland on this trip, and it's paid for, and um, I remember meeting up with Jeremy, and I remember meeting Jesse for the first time and just knowing that this guy is really funny. Like, I just wanted to surround myself with fun, nice people. And it was just radiating um, from him. It, it was just weird. I, I've always been that way. I just always wanted to be around good people. And I could sense it. And I know that sounds some, like voodoo shit. Like, it, it's... It's kind of some voodoo shit. Like, I can tell if you're legit or not. Because I've been around those people growing up, you know? We'd all have sleepovers. And those are some of the greatest times of my life, honestly. We would go down um, his street. He lived on a hill, like a tiny hill. We'd go, uh, go down in this... Yeah, we'd go down this wagon with no steering wheel down his hill and uh, film it after watching Jackass for like 12 hours and just being obsessed, completely obsessed with this. I remember pissing my pants, it was so funny. I actually had to borrow Jesse's pants. Those are some of the first memories uh, getting started with, with No Way Out. At this point in the conversation, we start talking about junior high, uh, between seventh and ninth grade, and we call them our defining years. I, I think the most focus really was on Okay, how do I make this band work? And that's where my mind was at, was like, okay, well, this is what I'm obsessed about, and this is what I want to spend my most time on. And and then having time for homework, having time for, like, girlfriends, or trying to figure out if I can have a girlfriend, you know what I mean? Those were things that I thought about. So, so, uh, so No Way Out kind of, we, we, uh, we got together around freshman year no way out really was like okay 
uh, I just joined the band. And then literally months later, we have to do these covers because uh, we, we have to have five originals. So in the last episode, I talked about how Larry would hang out at our rehearsals when we first started our first band, uh, No Way Out. And we kind of go into how he manifested him joining the band and putting that into the universe and making it happen. Uh, it was weird for me because like the whole time I literally was thinking like, I know what I want and I know that I just, if I hang out long enough and if I get my shot, I'm going to literally just capitalize. I may. And, and I think they could feel that from me. I, so I really, you really do. So you really, you really wanted to put that out in the universe. Like I want to join this band in the back of your mind. You were like, I'm going to be the lead singer of this. I know if band. I hang out long enough and, and I feel like you manifested. I do. That idea. And that's one of the only times in my life where I was like, like I really felt like I manifested that shit. Honestly, dude. Honestly. So let's talk about that. Do you have a memory of the first time you ever sang with us? Yeah. So you guys were doing literally larger than life covers, and I was like, dude, I got a raspy voice, and I think I could do this. Like I think we were just messing around. Like I, w I remember always picking up the mic and just like joking around with you guys, and just kind of like spritzing like some like vocals to you guys just a little bit, and just thinking like if anything would bite, like I was baiting them, you know, honestly, and. And everyone knew I had this really weird, unique, high, odd voice. And it was a little raspy at the time. You really don't know what your voice sounds like. Even when you listen to it, you just, you don't hear it when you sing it. It was just very odd to me. But I would sprinkle that to you guys. I would just give it to you guys, little sprinkles here and there. But I made sure to go home when they would play these covers and like try and like sing it to myself and try and get the best. And they don't know this. I would try to be the best that I could to sing these songs if I was ever summoned. I know, this is weird. But if they summoned me, I'm like, yes, I fucking got this shit, dude. And it was it was going to happen. I manifested it. <laughs> you manifested all that. I wanted it. So fast forward, uh, Larry joins our band. We do a bunch of covers, and we're in the garage. We're in Steven's garage for a bunch of years. Not a bunch of years, maybe a few months. And we're covering a lot of stuff. We're covering Save the Day. Dude, and Rufio. Rufio. We did Rufio. We did... Uh, Finch. A ton of Finch. We did, oh, that's right. We did a ton of Finch. Favorite song to sing, by the way, was Stay With Me from Finch. That's awesome. I love that's that song. That's awesome. I remember covering that, that song. Um, but yeah, fast forward, we're, we start taking this thing seriously. We're, we're covering Larger Than Life. And we did this thing called the Battle of the Bands. Everyone's done a Battle of the Bands. You guys know about Battle of the Bands. But we did this one at Kane's at Mission Beach. And we end up winning this thing. So we show up at Mission Beach. Larry's a fucking rock star. Um, we bring out all our friends, and they go crazy. There's like a little mosh pit going on. They had poster signs, dude. They had poster, they had signs. poster signs. Yo, so I want everyone to like really realize, like if you were never in a band in like what, 2004, 2003, you had to sell tickets. Tickets. You really had to sell tickets. We sold tickets to that we Battle of the Bands, man. I think we sold the most tickets. And that was going to determine what our play spot was yes. and how much time we had. Yo, literally. Like, I think Steven sold the most tickets, dude. I, I didn't sell that many. I sold them to, like, my mom, family. Like, I I don't know. I, I Like, we all had the same friends, like, in... In junior high, yeah. I feel like. Honestly, it was like this big. So Stephen had like 
Steven was actually in like church, like a church group. Yeah. And I do remember like his entire church group coming to the show. Like it was, yeah. <laughs> it was like the entire church squad. And I was like, oh, damn, they're really supportive. So eventually we end up winning the, the Battle of the Bands and uh, we won some studio time. And we ended up doing our, our first EP uh, called The Courtesy of Stars at this really, really, uh, it was kind of bougie to us. To us. And you know what I'll never forget? Dude, honestly, here's the weirdest part about fucking that whole studio. They had placards of uh, Rocket from the Crypt and, um, gosh, yeah, Modest Mouse records on their wall as if, like, they recorded there. But then I listened to the quality of what we got, and I'm like, there's no way these awesome bands, like a Swami band, like, there's no way they recorded there. I can't even remember the studio name. Can you remember the studio? I think it was called Trackstar Studios. Yo, listen. If Trackstar Studios can confirm or deny, or if maybe I can just look it up myself, please, I don't know. That was just weird. Yo, I want to give you a challenge, Jesse Burra. I want to re-record that whole record in your studio. It would (laughs) sound a lot better than that. Yo, I would love love to see what that sounds like. No, I'm just curious. Um, But, (laughs) oh my God. (laughs) That'd be, just really think about that for a second. We start talking about other bands in SoCal that influenced us growing up. Bands like Counterfeit, Noise Ratchet, Larger Than Life, and Die Radio Die. Man, uh, those were the ones. I mean, I, I think I've been to maybe at least 10 Counterfeit shows, and I truly believe that if those bands didn't exist for me, like, I don't, I don't think I would be, I, I don't think I would have continued on, honestly. Uh, Noise Ratchet, um, Switchfoot, Safe from Charms. We always fought to be like the, these guys that just knew more. We wanted to know more, and we wanted to be like on it and on top of it. That's when you're excited about music when you're that age. I feel like, I mean, even now, but just not as much, because you're, you're trying to prove yourself. Like, what band do you know? Like, what band do you like? Like, what what are you into? And if someone ever asks you a question, you'd be like, Oh, yeah, did you go to the Counterfeit show at the Epicenter? Right. Did it was, it was it was cool to like a certain band yeah. in your in your county. So um, we kept growing, and um, our first break was obviously the the Warped Tour thing. Yeah, I was actually surprised that we we won a spot on there. Crazy! It was just insane. I, I, so I guess their basis was uh, biggest crowd. I don't. I don't know what biggest, else the criteria was. What, it was biggest band on a, obviously performance from their yeah performance yeah. on their stage. We go on to win the Ernie Ball Battle of the Bands, beating out over four thousand other acts around the country, and do a showcase at the Key Club in Hollywood for a bunch of record execs and the founder of the Vans Warped Tour. Kevin Lyman had found out about our band, and he was starting up a label with. Uh, some investors <laughs> concrete concrete uh, yeah concrete media and it was he made a label called Warcon Records which was basically we were the guinea pigs of this record yeah so I, I think we were one of the first bands signed to that label and this was when I think uh, 360 deals were like first introduced so I think what that means is um, 
They have, get everything. Yeah, they always get everything. 360 but, deal but, means you're getting fucked in the butt. Yeah, so don't do that. Don't ever sign one of those. But it was supposed to be half of what you do is reinvested. Half of what you get in profits is reinvested back into the label for marketing for all bands, not just your band. So I, I think we're one of the first guinea pigs, I think, in, in my opinion. I, I don't know if uh, a lot of people were signing these deals when we first started. The weirdest part was is we had an attorney named Sagit, who uh, I guess our second manager, third manager, was like, yeah, yeah, just go with her. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, just sign the deal. So we did. So at this point, we talk about signing our first deal to work on records and basically not really caring about the money or the debt or anything that came along with um, signing because we just thought being signed at the time was, you know, the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And we were fools, I think, in a sense. Um, Money talks. But, but it does. But it sounded so good at the time. And, it, and even I wasn't dumb enough to be like, all right, well, like, yeah, anyone gets signed almost, you know, if you're like half decent. You know, so, but in my mind, this seemed like th there was a lot of people's best interests, like, like at hand here and, and right. it sounded great and it sounded amazing and things were going to change and we're going to go to that next level. And that's, that's what this band, like when we first started, we didn't even know was achievable. And then we did things that were not achievable <laughs> to us in our minds. And we did those things and we kept on going and then growing more and getting bigger and selling out 400 cap rooms and we're like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe this is happening. And then we're like, oh, wait, we're gonna get signed. I, I can't believe this. This is this is the next step for us. Like th this is happening way too fast, but but we're, we're like, fuck it. Let's just keep going. Take it as let's, it comes. Let's, let's go. Let's and we were having fun going. with it. We're having a great time. And it, in my mind, it was like, yeah, dude, fuck all these people that were like <laughs> making fun of us, that were just like, like just literally just from our neighborhoods that were starting other bands. And it was never a fuck you to them. It, it really was more so like, you know what? I want this for myself now. I don't even, this is, this is nothing to me. Like where I'm from now means it, it's, it, you just don't think about where you're from anymore. You think about like where I'm going to go. And that next step and the next level of what you want for your life. And that's that's what we wanted, all of us. We wanted to get there. And it was happening really, really fast. And I I don't know. I it just was like a dream almost. And I was just unconscious. And but I was what? We were 17, 16? Yeah. So we were 17, 18. When we did that, maybe 17, 18, well, 87. So what, 13 plus what? Oh shit. I'm gonna get all the years wrong. Oh, Anyways, five. 18. Yeah, so we were 18. So we start talking about recording our first studio album with a known producer named Sal Villanueva, who had produced bands we loved named Taking Back Sunday and Thursday. Yo, I, I just remember being cuddled up with you, dude, in the back of the van. It was just me and you left. Yeah. Everyone went home and, uh, and uh, it, we had some things we need to take care of, and and I know why you didn't leave. Like I, you you were get you were coaching me, and you were you were my rock, dude, and you were the fucking reason why I was able to finish. Um, oh yeah, but uh, for me, Jesse, I feel like you've always been that for me, and 
this this guy that has always given me confidence, always given me um, support to be uh, the best that I can be. And you've always done that from the beginning of uh, of No Way Out until the end of my American art. And even now in my life as as an adult, I don't. I don't think you realize how much that means to me. And I, I can never thank you. I, I just, there's, there's no way I can ever thank you enough. It's a little sappy moment. I love you too, bro. I love you, bro. I love you too. There's nothing like waking <laughs> up with a bottle of piss next to me <laughs> and it being yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love so, you. I love you. I love you. you, man. We lived in Jersey City for about a month, living off of $10 or less a day commuting in our van and a lot of the time sleeping in it. It was the first time we ever worked with another songwriter as well who wasn't in our band. Oh man, that was fucking awkward. Just sitting in a room like with this guy and then him throwing out ideas and you gotta imagine 17 year olds with some guy that's like 40 plus? 50. Okay, but like also trying to tell us like what kind of sound we should go for also for the scene that we're also in which he had no idea about and I it was weird that they hired this guy that was not part of what scene we were in and it was disconnect for sure but we were also at that age where we didn't know how to be like yo man this isn't gonna work or like in the beginning we also weren't at the age where we could be like hey bro like this is this is not what like <laughs> this is not the seed that we're in right now like i we're not trying to write kelly clarkson we're not trying to write an nsync song we're, we're also not like we're just I, I i can't explain it jesse i i don't know how else to explain it besides that like it was just different and it was very weird and very awkward very awkward but we ended up finishing up those sessions and we wrote a song called Runaway, which ended up being a really cool song. Um, <laughs> hey, man. That we actually played a, a, a decent amount of times on the road. I, I'm going to keep it real with you guys real quick. If people ask me about meaning makeup and they ask me how I feel about it, I, I'm, it's not my best performance of where I was at. It was definitely different because I felt like... Um, we, we just got off tour and then we got asked to finish a record literally in three months and it was the hardest thing and being forced to get something done on that timeline was the hardest thing and it, I don't even think it was three months I, I think it was a little less than that but I, I just really working in those conditions very difficult so I don't know it was just a weird place for me as a human being and as young as I was and and not having a lot of experience just I had a lot of experience playing all the EPs and being on tour like literally for the the last two years before that you know Mm -hmm. so that was different for me we started talking about going on some tours uh, overseas uh, going over to the UK doing the Soundwave Festival in Australia and just some stories. Incubus was on it? Yo, Incubus was on it. They wouldn't let anyone on the stage. That's not a diss to them. Not a diss. Uh, not a diss. I mean, get I get it. Fucking You're stage. fucking Incubus. Get don't, off my don't, fucking stage. Don't stand on my stage. Yo, but one thing that I remember us talking about, and, and I'll never forget, was, and I, I tell the story to other people, like, 
I, I want to talk about how if if that plane crashed, how many bands and right, how many fans would have been crash. super sad? Yo, I know plane crash, but listen, let's talk about the lineup real quick. We had Killswitch Engage, we had Incubus, we had a Static Lullaby, we had uh, what was Census Fail on that tour? No, Census Fail. Me without you is is the guy from the singer of Me Without You? Is his name uh, Alex? Or I know their his last name is Weiss. Mr. Weiss here was collecting all of. Uh, like the food from um, all of our green rooms and just going in there and be like, hey, can I have this? And then just passing it out at the terminals of each, like each uh, layover that we had and each each uh, airport that we were at. And it was weird because like Soundwave was cool. They grouped you in with uh, certain bands. So we were grouped with the Tallest Lions and Me Without You. And... What was cool was as tall as Lions knew that my favorite band was Broken Social Scene, which I'm wearing a hat of, and they took me to my first Broken Social Scene concert ever, and it was the smallest venue I've ever seen, and it was crazy. It was beautiful. Koalas aren't as soft as you think. No, they also have sharp-ass claws, dude. Good luck to you and your fucking chest and your back. <laughs> Goodbye. It's going to hurt. Goodbye to your entire life. Yeah, see you later. Um, it hurts. Okay. It's not even fun. I, I will say that my favorite time uh, of touring was honestly sitting in that van with you guys and listening to some jams. Oh, It was always a jam session. We'd always be like, oh, let's listen to this. Let's listen to that. Let's get inspired by this. Let's get inspired by that. And writing, talking about what we wanted to do once we got to the venue. That stuff was hilarious because Dustin's thing was uh, Subway. Yo, I talked about, um, I hyped up fucking um, Jimmy John's for everybody on the web, all my friends, and they got to go. And nice. no one was impressed. And I'm like, I love how they have the, the classic brown mustard. I, their, their sandwiches are classic. Very good. Just classic sandwiches. Very delicious. Super delicious. We started talking about uh, technology and phones and the uprise of smartphones. Yo, I just had a flip phone, bro. I had a flip phone. Do you know how many times I dropped that thing and it never broke? I think I, I, I could swear like I dropped it. And you know what was funny about that phone? I remember having to pull the antenna out. And, and none of these kids... We'll ever know what's what it's like to pull an antenna out to make sure you get the best service. That shit's hilarious. We start talking about tour pranks and yeah, just pranks we would pull on certain bands we were on tour with. Usually bands we really, really loved. So I don't know who started it. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and figure this out. But uh, let's go to where what I first remember. We put honey on their windows and we broke up open and we put feathers all over their van windows honey and feathers all over the window and then we also got crickets and we fucking threw a thousand crickets in their van okay like th this is insane they play set we grab the keys we just throw crickets in there and we did all that shit you took a shit on their windshield we took it that far we took it that far we did take it pretty far, uh, but we started moving on, and uh, we start talking about our second studio record called Hiding Inside the Horrible Weather, 
And we decided to go with producer James Paul Wisner, who had produced Paramore and Under Oath and Dashboard Confessional. And this is a little bit about that. It, it was interesting, though, because during that time, like the guidance was very odd. We, we didn't have very much guidance. So we reached out to a guy named Mike Kaminsky. Mike Kaminsky is, um, for me, Love you, Mike. Uh, one of our saviors. And uh, one of the people that I looked up to as uh, for one guidance. Of the, one of the only people that actually got our band. Yeah, and got also it. and also cared enough, and uh, he helped us through that transition period to find a manager. And it was it was hard to. I, I I mean, it seemed like he wanted to manage us, maybe, or maybe he didn't have time. I don't know what the situation was, but what we picked another manager after that. But he taught me a lot. And we, we picked James, and we went with James. And uh, Mike gave me all the confidence in the world that this record was going to work. I remember sitting at Jesse's house and writing songs and, and spending literally months every day just going at it, trying to figure out what what to do and how to write. And, yeah, and what we didn't get from Meaning Makeup, what I didn't get out of Meaning Makeup, I felt like hiding inside was, was going to be... A huge part of, of of me, I got to give a lot more. That writing experience was uh, probably one of my favorite parts of, of being in this band and recording it as well. That was some of the best moments of my life, honestly. I just remember sitting in that studio and just remembering that what, whatever you guys were saying and whatever you guys wanted and whatever I wanted, I, I knew we all wanted the same thing. I remember just fucking literally sitting in that studio for like literally eight Ten, eight hours and just crying yeah. my yeah. eyes out and just with James yeah and and with you guys just well with you you would stay I would stay you would, would stay never, would you would never leave and just giving me the confidence man and just I think that for me uh, I want to be the best for you guys and for myself obviously and I, I think that's why we lasted so long and I think that's why we we worked so well together and I, I, I literally think that's why we progressed as well as we did but something that I've learned along the way is um, we all need to be aware of, of who we are as people and how we treat each other and being in my American heart was uh, the great experience of my life honestly I'll never forget that forever um, but working with James uh, was honestly honestly uh, it was a game changer it was an eye-opening experience and um it, it was like, this is what it's like to work in a professional studio. I talk a little bit about uh, how I was inspired by James to start producing because the way he did records was in a house and in a very comfortable environment. And Larry starts to talk about uh, the JB Cave and what we started here. It's, it's your mindset as an artist and it's your mindset as a producer. And it's the, the vibe that you, you create. And I feel like the things that I've heard come from the studio, this cave, has been nothing less than phenomenal, honestly. I don't think I've heard one bad thing come out of the studio. And it, it really has to do, and it starts with the vibe. And I think this cave is amazing. It's awesome. I love it. It's beautiful. You've done some fucking amazing things here. And, and uh... Uh, it's crazy. It, it's insane to think about that. We literally, all we were doing was just playing guitar and eating fucking bullshit. 
If we day. were eating bullshit. And, like and playing bullshit. shows and playing shows to like four people. Larry starts to elaborate on the the end of our band and kind of the downfall and uh, when we decide to split apart. I'll go into a little bit more detail about what happened as far as as what led to the split up. I, I think that um, the label was a huge part of it. I think that was about 90% of it. So, so what happened once is our label says straight up like you, give you the money, uh, not gonna mark it. And then in our eyes, we're like, okay, well, there's a clause and if they don't adhere to this clause, we get released and they respond and uh, we're not getting released. And then we try and uh, get people interested in buying us out of our contract. Fearless Records offers a sum of money and that gets denied to buy us out of our contract. And then um, that was it. It's, it sounds super cliche and, and I think that was a part of it. I, I think the, the, the idea of staying stagnant wasn't very good for us. But you think about all these bands that persevered. You think about Mayday. You think about... Um, Pierce. Our boys in Pierce. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't go anywhere for a while. They changed their names three times. You know what I mean? I, I think we all really knew that we all had different directions to go into. And it it's not sad. It does suck. Uh, not being in a band anymore. So last October, we all reunited um, for the first time in a couple years uh, to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of our album, Hiding Inside the Horrible Weather. And Larry talks about the experience. I, I didn't expect us to sell that many tickets, and I didn't expect us to have that dandy of a time that we did, honestly. I thought it was going to be a little more difficult. It's a jolly good time. Jesse took lead of the whole thing. Jesse's always been a leader, <laughs> literally. Every day for uh, like three weeks, I ran through uh, Hiding Inside the Horrible Weather. I even forgot a ton of lyrics. I, I really did. I'm not going to lie. It, it wasn't muscle memory anymore. It was um, a battle of attrition for my mind because he said attrition, <laughs> bro. That's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. It really was. I was like battling my mind to fucking literally remember everything. Uh, remember how I felt. Remember like why I wrote it. Remember why I I was in that headspace to fucking get there, and and really convey and. I don't think I ever truly tried to do that. I don't think I tried to meditate on it as much as I did when we did these reunion shows. And um, I don't think I've ever felt better. And I think a huge positive is that is that I quit smoking cigarettes. And um, hey, man. Yeah. Congrats. Quitting dude. smoking cigarettes was the greatest thing I've ever done. I, I dude, I quit. I didn't drink. And I also, you know, really learned how to control my voice. And uh, I, I just. I want to be better. Yeah. And now it's like, hi guys. Hey, I want to tell you who I am. Um, this is a story about. <laughs> I I literally had people come up with pictures of us, like when I was like what yeah. seventeen, and they were maybe twelve, and and they were with their parents, and it was just the cutest thing ever, dude. Uh, we start talking about how a lot of our fans in SoCal were Asian Americans. And sometimes we forgot how big our culture actually inspired a lot of these kids. And we kind of forgot that we were a voice for these kids, too. 
And and the beautiful part of that was that we didn't have any idea that that's what we were doing for you guys. Like we we had no we had no clue that because we didn't think like hey we gotta we gotta make it for Asian Americans we gotta mm. make it for Filipinos we gotta make it for Pacific Islanders we gotta make it for all the Asians. Like we didn't think that one bit to do that. It became a natural thing. It became a thing. It did seem that way. My American heart. What, what does that mean to you? That means to me that I, I have no color. I'm American. And what's beautiful is it, it all started with a piebald song. So Larry goes into detail about how we discovered our name. I started a web design firm and I started designing um, through HTML and Swift and... Uh, and I named my firm My American Heart, and I wasn't the best programmer, and I wasn't the best uh, Photoshop person in the world. And um, I started a firm called, yeah, I had a vision, and I named it My American Heart, and that was based off Piebald. And the only reason why I named it that was, um, it sounded cool, right? It sounded amazing. And then, and then we all realized that we had to change our name. I literally did have to sell why we should be named My American Heart, though. Because everyone was like, XX, 619, oh, emo, whatever. It's better to ask for forgiveness. It's better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. One Alan and Dan's greatest quotes. But but I will say I did have to be like, yo, man, we're Filipino. We're as American as these guys. Like, I I truly, I, I truly believe that. All right. So from humble beginnings to success with My My American Heart, um, being immersed in different worlds and social hierarchies, a lot of people don't experience the kind of things that you did. And I got to say, like the last 10 years that I've known you, you've always been so nice to me. You've always been so nice to all my friends and you've always been so kind to everybody that you know. How do you stay so grounded? I think being uh, you, I think being genuine and with your feelings and not putting on this persona and this thing that we we like to believe we have, which is uh, this make-believe thing that we, we should be better or we should treat someone. And it's weird. It comes in your conscious. And sometimes you say things that you don't mean. I just want to be me. And, and me is I love everybody, honestly. I mean that. I, I've always wanted to do good to everyone. I'm a server. Yeah. That's that's my love language. I just want to serve. Larry starts to talk about his wife, Michelle, who I absolutely love and has been a friend of mine for many, many years. My wife is the greatest person I've ever met. She's been a huge supporter of, of everything I've done in my life since I met her. But what's crazy is we were friends first, and I think that's what makes us stronger now. She came to our show at the scene, actually, and she asked who I was. Uh, she was with some friends, old friends, and they brought her to the show, and she asked who I was. And um, You went up to you? Like yeah, she didn't have a boyfriend, though. I had a girlfriend. I don't know. It was just we were, we were just introduced. Like, oh, that was it. Yeah, yeah. But, but how we met, I, I literally asked her on MySpace, or Friendster, sorry, on Friendster. Do you guys remember Friendster? 
I oh asked her what friendster. jeans I should get, what girl jeans I should get. We became friends first. We started chatting, and and I had a girlfriend, and she had a boyfriend, and I think we both knew. I want to thank Jesse oh, and special. Grace for for literally being a catalyst in this. Uh, we used to go to his stepfather's house and hang out, have the best times. We used to listen to vinyl records. We used to listen to our favorite music. We used to just hang out and just be kids. I'll never forget that. Uh, Jesse, you pretty much, and, and Grace even, thank you guys for being a catalyst for uh, uh, my wife and I now. I, I think you guys are really, I love you guys. A massive responsibility. So how was? Uh, so I want to hear about the wedding because I know the wedding was a really cool uh, situation. Because uh, from what I know, they uh, they decided to go ahead and do something special between them two alone and a photographer, and go up to the redwoods and yeah. and make it super sacred. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. So I would love to hear about that. So. Our relationship has always been us and we wanted to make it special and we realized that our love between us is is always been about us it's me and her and it has nothing to do with anyone else and it wasn't that we were trying to be selfish we just realized that um the the relationship that we have is is between two people and um it's it's crazy it should I, be one v one yeah it should be one v one, and, and I, I would I, never be mad at anyone that ever chose that path and or the other. Either. I'm a very loving person, and I really just don't think I could have done that with Michelle without you, Jesse, oh my as gosh. a catalyst. Uh, honestly, you don't have to. Uh, I know, but you guys as a couple, you and Gratian, I mean, I, I think it's you don't have to. I know. There's <laughs> we spent a lot of time together, dude. And we did. I, I feel like you guys. Definitely, it was just inspiring. It's crazy. It's really it's cool, like listening to you talk about how you first met Michelle, and then how Jesse and Grace were a a catalyst to get you guys together. It seems like it was because you're you're already in an established relationship. Michelle was already in an established relationship, but just the two of you getting together was so organic. And then looking at your wedding photos, it kind of comes full circle. We spent a lot of time together, and we had a lot of good times together. The, and the two of you just like sharing and um, and just making a commitment to love and, and to life and to sickness and in health in such a natural environment, it's almost surreal. It, it's weird. I like, it's not that I've forgotten about it. It's like, I can't believe it happened. Like, I can't believe it happened to me. I can't believe I would ever feel that way. To realize how much I love this person, how I can't imagine my life without this person. It's strange. It is strange, um, but it's beautiful and it's honest and it's it's good. We're happy for you. Thanks. Craziness. Yeah. Craziness. Find love, people. We spent over two hours recording this episode and shared so many stories. Uh, but after running them back and a few too many shots of tequila, we realized how sacred some of these stories were. I plan on doing another episode with Larry in the near future to uncover some of the stories behind our songs and other topics as well, but I'm glad we got to cover most of his background and things that were most important to him and myself at the time. So this concludes our second episode of Cave Talks. Once again, thank you guys so much for tuning in and supporting this new venture. Uh, We have an exciting new episode next week that I cannot wait to share, so 
stay tuned and and yeah thank you guys so much love you guys peace